If you're like me, living life without a Facebook or a MySpace page, you may want to take some time to reconnect with what's going on in the lives of young people. Good morning. I'm George Boraki. Today on Cityscape, we'll take a look at some of the issues facing today's youth. We'll speak to two young women from the Bronx who are taking control of their futures, learn about a group that provides support to young people diagnosed with cancer, and we'll try to answer the question, just why do kids choose to expose their innermost thoughts on the Internet? They say, I have no secrets. Everything that I do is something that I don't have a problem with, including mistakes and embarrassing things. That's all just part of who I am. And if people know that about me, I can live with that. It's Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Thanks for joining us. The teen years can be challenging. There are issues with peer pressure, breakups, schoolwork. You can say it's all a part of growing up, but when you're 16 and find out you're pregnant, you're forced to grow up a whole lot faster. In New York City, teen pregnancy rates are higher in the Bronx than any other borough. 19-year-old Jadine Ortega lives in the South Bronx. She's quite aware of the struggles teen moms face. Not only does she have a two-year-old, but she works with a group that helps young mothers out. It's called Sisters on the Rise. When I went to visit Jadine at her mom's apartment, her son was sleeping, giving us time to talk. My name is Jadine Ortega. I'm 19 years old. I live in the Bronx, and I have a two-year-old son. So you were 17 when you had your child? Yes, I was 17 when I had him. Was that a big shock to you when you found out you were pregnant at 17? It was a very big shock. I found out I was pregnant when I was 16, actually, and I could not have been more scared in my life. I wasn't living at home. Um, Someone else had um, guardianship of me. So I felt like a really big disappointment to the person that had, you know, given me a chance and taken me in. And I was even more scared to tell my mother because I wasn't even living with her and I knew that it would really break her heart. How did your friends react? How did other people in your community react to the fact that you were pregnant and you were 16? They kind of just expected it. It was just like, you know, that's what's happening in this area and it wasn't, it was just, you know, accepted like, oh, well, whatever, another one lost. And um, it was just like, um, once I seen people's reactions of like, oh, she was going to fail anyway, that really gave me the, the passion to say, you know what, now, because you say I can't succeed, I'm going to succeed, you know? I, when I tell my story, I don't want it to be a story of sadness or to be a story of like, oh, you know, poor me, feel bad for me. When I tell my story, I try to tell it a story of strength to give hope for other girls that are, you know, struggling teen mothers. Because in the end, I graduated from high school and I graduated with honors. And, you know, when people hear my story, I want them to look at me as well. Like, that that's a strong woman, you know. She overcame a lot, and she's still working to get where she wants to be, and she's not letting anything hold her back. When you were 16 and you got pregnant, you said you weren't looking ahead too far in the future. But it sounds like now you are. You're looking toward that future. I'm definitely looking towards the future now, and I am working hard to, you know, try to have something stable for my son and I guess having my son really made me grow up because 
I'm not saying that I'm not still young because I know I'm still young, but at that time I was so rebellious and I hated everybody and I didn't want to do anything good and I just wanted to be left alone to like be a rebel and just go off and do whatever I wanted. But having my son made me wake up and say, you know what, you're not the only person in the world, you know, and now this person needs you to love them and you have to be stable enough and you have to be happy to give this child, you know, something happy in their life. And he really made me have passion again to make me feel alive, to make me want to do something, to make me want to be proud of myself so that he will be proud of me, you know? Did mothering come easy to you when you first had your son? Did it feel comfortable? Um, I'm going to be honest. It was really hard, and I found myself lost a lot of times. Um, the first night I actually spent alone with my son in the hospital, was the most stressful night ever. Um, he woke up and he was crying. And I didn't know what to do. I tried feeding him and he didn't want to eat. I changed his pamper and he just wouldn't, he wouldn't stop crying. And I cried too because I didn't know what to do, you know? And I remember getting on the phone from the hospital and calling my mother. And I remember crying like, I don't know why he keeps crying. The baby's crying. I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know. I try everything in tears. And I remember my mother telling me, well, did you try burping him? And I'm like, no. And I start burping him. And all I hear is a little burp come out of him. And I was just so like, oh, my God, burping. Okay, I think I can do this. Where did you find your support? You know, it's not easy for anyone at any age raising a child. Where did you find your support? How were you able to go back to school? I found my support from the young women at Sisters on the Rise. I found my support from my mother who I hadn't been staying with. I found support from all the women in my life that I had pushed away. In time of need, the women that I pushed away the most were there for me. and. I cannot stress this more to any young girls. No matter how much you say, oh, I don't like to hang out with girls because, you know, we, we have problems, girls talk about each other. In the end, you need strong women in your life because that's the only thing that I think really saved me because I was in such a bad relationship. And when, when the women at Sisters on the Rise found out, like, the abusive relationship that I was in, all the women got together and they had, we had a meeting. I remember we had a meeting and they were like, listen, you have to leave him. And I was very against it. No, I'm not going to leave him. He only slapped me one time, you know, trying to cover up for him. And that same day they came with my mother and that was it. They took me from their, you know, his house and they took all my stuff and was like, leave her alone, don't call her. And at the time, I think I hated everybody so much. I hated all the girls and I hated my mother for taking me away from him and I love him. But a couple days after leaving him, I woke up happy. You became smarter and you became stronger. I do believe I became smarter and stronger, and that is only because of those women supporting me. Tell me about the kinds of work that you have done with other teen moms in the Bronx. Well, um, we were, we were, and we still currently are working on um, a child care reform that um, they're making a new law. Well, they have passed a law actually that 
in order to get child care, you have to have um, the other parent, the absent parent, where it's the mother or the father, you have to have them on child support or you are not eligible to get um, low-income child care. It's um, making everything really hard for young women to get child care. Right now, I'm not working because I, I don't have child care, you know? And even the free child care slots that, that, that are available in this community are all filled up, and there's a really long waiting list. There's not a lot of resources, you know, for us to really do something with ourselves. I have to stay home with my son because if I don't stay home with him, nobody's going to stay with him. So really, you have a personal safety net. You have the support of your family, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, it sounds like you don't have the social safety net. You don't have the assistance that you need to move on with your life, to get a job, to support yourself. I, I don't have that assistance, and it, it gets really frustrating, and sometimes it really pulls you down, and, and it discourages you from, you know, accomplishing your goals and, and doing certain things, you know, like... Last semester, I went to college, you know. That was my first semester in school, and this semester I'm not in school, and it really hurts me because I want to be in school, you know. I did really well my first semester of college, and I put all my blood and sweat into it. And, you know, for me to see the grades that I got last semester and to now be sitting home, it it's really sad for me because I know what I'm capable of. Right now you're staying with your mom. Now I'm staying with my mom. Um, in a couple months, I don't know where I could be. You know, it, it's hard. Living quarters are cramped. I'm sharing, you know, a room with another person and my son. It, and it's, you know, it's difficult that I don't have the resources, you know, that I need. Here in New York City, you can go to what's called a peace school when you're a pregnant teen. You can go to a high school for pregnant girls. Do you think that those high schools, though, don't go far enough to give pregnant teen a good education? You know, there's a school around this area. Um, it's Martha Nielsen Peace School. And it is not so much as a school as it is a program. It's a nine-month program um, that you can go to while you're pregnant. Um, it doesn't like it doesn't have a reading you know a reading teacher math teachers. There, there was so many problems. The lunches they fed the girls weren't good. Um, they really didn't work on education in, in peace schools. It was just kind of like all the pregnant girls get together and they're just, oh, you're, oh, let me see your sonogram. Let me, and that's cute, you know, that you're sharing, you know, with other pregnant girls because you need that. You need women in your life, and that's nice that you're bonding with other women that are going through the same thing as you, but the school was not really teaching them, you know? When you look back at your life now, and again, you are only 19 years old, what would you say has been your proudest moment? I would say my proudest moment is when I graduated. Um, I worked really, really hard my whole pregnancy. I just didn't talk to anybody, and I was like, oh, sorry, can't talk to you. I have to do my work. And uh, when I graduated, I was a valedictorian, and... I remember them calling me and telling me, like, oh, Jadine, I just wanted you to know, you know, um, it was a unanimous vote. You are valedictorian. The school chose you to, you know, be valedictorian. And I remember saying, uh, what's that? <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's, you know, that's good. You sh are you sure that it's me? Who, who voted? You sure everyone voted? 
And they were like, yes, we're sure. And I, I just wouldn't believe it at first. I'm like, for real? Maybe you're calling the wrong person. And I told my story. And when I told my story, I said, this story is not for anyone to feel bad. It's for the young women in the audience right now that are hearing this. Know that you could be here too. And I just felt so much love. All the girls were screaming for me. And it was like... The, I was just so proud. It was really nice to just be able to accept my diploma with my son in my arms and just, you know, rep for young moms, you know, doing our thing. So that was the greatest moment for me. 19-year-old Jadine Ortega is raising her two-year-old son in the South Bronx. She works with an organization that helps out young mothers called Sisters on the Rise. Jadine speaks for a lot of young women in her neighborhood who are faced with difficult situations but rise to the occasion. One program that looks to help young people from the Bronx secure a better future is the Cristo Ray High School. We spoke to Cristo Ray student and up-and-coming entrepreneur Kimberly Jimenez. She works two days a week at the National Council on Economic Education in Midtown Manhattan. My name is Kimberly, and I am from the Bronx. I apply to Cristo Ray's my freshman year and I got accepted. It was a small high school and they have a work study program and they make you go through a business boot camp where they teach you how the school is going to be and then they give they put you in a job and they you know they do different stuff like filing they go to work like a normal um, grown-up. My name is Carrie McIndoe and I'm the senior director for the Youth Entrepreneurship Program for the National Council on Economic Education. Kimberly has been working with me for the past semester. She's here for a whole school year on a work-study program, and she's been really instrumental in helping um, come up with some of the research and the data that we need to help me get the whole office organized, doing basic things from filing all the way to helping me with a competitive analysis and she helped us develop a nationwide contest for entrepreneurs. What I have to do, I have to pick, like I have to put it in Word and put their name and describe like what did they invent or creating. Like for example, Bill Gates, um, from, he's from Washington, and I have to write what did he created. When I met her and interviewed her and found out what her interests were, I realized that there's a lot of interest that she might have as a young woman in high school, but she also was very pleasant. She had a good demeanor. She was well-trained in basic office skills. And the initial things that we knew she could help us do with basic filing, uh, some of the reporting things were really, really helpful. In addition, now that she's been here, what I found out is that she's helping do a competitive analysis and she's helping do more in-depth research and her opinion really matters because she is the exact age range for the students that we are trying to reach out to. On Mondays you go to school and you get like two hours worth of homework, plus you have to um, study for tests the next day. And then you go to work, and then Thursday, like leaving an office 5.15, getting home like around 6, and then going to school and finishing like homework again. It's, it's, it's a big responsibility. The approach with working with Kimberly in the office is even though she is a student and even though she is young, she's treated like anybody else. She is an employee of the firm, she, of the organization. She is expected to be here on time. She's expected to adhere to the one-hour lunch. She's expected to report in to me. If she's working on a project and she isn't quite sure or has questions, she's expected to come and ask me so we have a 
a work relationship. Yeah, they really are. For my supervisor, is excellent. Um, if I need help, you know, they're they're there. They treat me like a, a grown up. They don't treat me like a little kid. Yeah, I do want to go to college. I do want to go to college, and I want to finish. I would like to open my business, some in the future. Yeah, like the same thing, like to help teachers, to help kids, um, how to use their money wisely. Kimberly Jimenez is a sophomore at Cristo Rey High School in the Bronx. She works part-time at the National Council on Economic Education as part of their corporate work-study program. You're tuned to 90.7 FM and WFUV.org, and this is Cityscape. When I was in school, my friends and I would write notes to each other, private notes that we would never want to end up in someone else's hands. Well, times have certainly changed. Today, young people are putting their innermost thoughts and photos on the Internet for the world to see. Joining us on the phone now is Emily Nussbaum. Emily writes for New York Magazine. She's with us to talk about a recent article she wrote about how teens are using the Internet to express what they feel, think, and do on a regular basis. Emily, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Emily, you write in this article that young people's use of the Internet is creating a generation gap that we haven't seen since the early years of rock and roll. How so? To old people, rock music and the whole culture that surrounded it seemed disgusting and wild, and the basic question is, why would anyone act like that? And I think that that particular gap has pretty much dissolved. I mean, a lot of people share notions, but music is no longer a big divisive factor, and neither is cultural stuff surrounding it. But it's been replaced in a lot of senses by the way that young people use online culture, technology, the Internet, blogs, everything from YouTube to Flickr to Facebook. Right now, people who are under, and you know, like you can put it at different ages, but I would say you know, under 26 or 25 have grown up using online stuff. And so what they've grown up with is a very different sense of what categories of private and public mean. And from their perspective, I'm arguing, they believe that uh, putting stuff out in public is uh, not only a fine thing to do, but really normal, like a daily way to live your life. And this has, uh, has provoked a really disgusted, revolted, angry response from a lot of older people who essentially see this as a generation being shameless. You're right in the article that young people today perhaps are the only generation that truly understand that our lives are not private, period. Every email that they send is saved somewhere. There are cameras on every street. I mean, the government does have a certain amount of intrusiveness, but also just in the sense of, you know, if you have an ATM card, if you have a metro card that you use on the subway, all of your movements, all of your purchases, everything that you do online is already tracked. And so there's one argument that you could make that basically says, let's be realistic. My life is already a public life. The best possible response to that is not to try to fight it, which is a dead end, but to actually participate in it, see the upside of it, and actually you know, shape my own public image rather than, for instance, fight Google and try to get anything about me off, off the net. That's a whole other perspective here, the fact that once you put something online, it is very difficult to take that back. Do you get a sense that folks just aren't concerned that they're opening themselves up like that, that potentially employers can see what they're doing online, see a unflattering photograph or read a controversial blog that they've written that could potentially hurt them down the line? They've come up with a new way of thinking about that, which is essentially to say, so what? 
I, you know, I've talked to some people who really take a very extreme perspective on this, where they say, I have no secrets. Everything that I do is something that I don't have a problem with, including mistakes and embarrassing things. That's all just part of who I am. And if people know that about me, I can live with that because I just feel like that's people seeing who I am as a human being, and there's no reason that I should fight it so nobody will know any of my flaws. As for the workplace thing, I think that's a very important issue, and it's definitely something that over the next few years is going to be a major source of cultural conflict. It already is. Um, human Resources you know, frequently looks at people's MySpace pages, and I think a lot of college students, and especially high school students, are either unaware of this, sort of deliberately pushing off the feeling of it, or quite resentful of it. Like, why would they care if I had drunk pictures online? It's a, it's a real split of understanding. But one thing I, I do want to point out is that, uh, you know, in 15 years, those are the people who are going to be in the hiring positions. So I actually do wonder whether there will be a cultural shift to the point that just as it used to be that drinking or doing drugs in college or having premarital sex might be a completely shocking thing to know about someone, at this point, no one is not going to get a job because they had premarital sex in college. Similarly, I wonder if in 15 years, Nobody's going to care about somebody having a bunch of drunken partying pictures of them online because everybody will have those pictures online. It'll just be a normal part of adolescence. It's interesting, and you write this in your article, that today's young people are living the lives that politicians and celebrities have been living for years. In a lot of ways, it's just a realistic understanding of the way things operate online. One of the things I talk about is the fact that for young people today, they're used to thinking of themselves as having an audience. And this isn't narcissism. It's true. If you have a page online, you don't necessarily know who's looking at it. If you're having an email conversation, someone could forward that email to 100 people, and then it could be forwarded around the world. Photos of you will be seen by strangers all the time. And so they learn to think of themselves as speaking in a voice that is at once intimate and at the same time open to others. Emily Nussbaum writes for New York Magazine. Emily, thanks so much. Thank you. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. We were all young once, so we know what it feels like to have a sense of invincibility. But what happens when that feeling is cut short, stopped in its tracks by a cancer diagnosis? Where do you turn when all you're thinking is, I'm too young for this? Brooklyn resident Matthew Zachary is encouraging folks to turn to a new website called I'm Too Young for This. It was started by his organization, Steps for Living. Matthew founded the group after being diagnosed with brain cancer when he was 21 years old. Matthew joins us this morning on Cityscape. Matthew, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Pleasure to be here. Also with us this morning is Terry Scheinzeit. Terry is a New York City singer-songwriter and a pediatric kidney cancer survivor. She has a song on the I'm Too Young for This benefit CD. Her song is called Helpless Heart, and she'll be performing it for us in just a moment. Terry, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Nice to be here, George. Matthew, you were 21 years old when you were diagnosed with brain cancer. Do you remember your initial reaction? It was quite surreal, to be honest with you. It was one of those things where you can say it came out of left field, but it really doesn't do it justice, largely because I went misdiagnosed for so many months leading up to the actual correct diagnosis that it was just the left field of left field. And the invincibility complex, as you mentioned before, uh, really didn't crack at all, uh, even when I did get a conclusive diagnosis, because I was like, this can't possibly happen to me. Surely you're joking that there's not this giant thing of death sitting in my brain right now. So uh, just the whole surreal nature of it and, and the invincibility complex were were almost at odds with each other until 
I woke up in neuro ICU. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is actually happening. What does this really mean? What were your aspirations at the time, and how did they change? Well, at 21, I had uh, just finished up the fall semester of my senior year of college at uh, Binghamton University and uh, really was on track to be a Hollywood film composer. I had been playing uh, piano since I was 11. I took a music major and a computer science minor uh, in musicology at the university and had gotten to the USC Film School and was really all set to be the next John Williams, you know, huge aspirations, larger-than-life goals. Not only did I have a life-threatening situation, but I had a, a, a career-threatening situation. Terry, how about you? How old were you when you were diagnosed with cancer? I was six years old. Did you even understand what that meant at the time? No. You know, I didn't actually know I had cancer until I was 16. It's hard to imagine. But this was a very long time ago. It was 1960. So the world was so different than it is now. And people really didn't even talk about it. And I think that when I was 16, they had to explain some of the long-term side effects. So it's like, okay, let's tell her now. How did you deal with that at 16 years old? I think I was in shock. I mean, my whole life I was told that I had a sick kidney and a sick spleen and they took it out. And that was, I guess that was enough for me. And it's really how much does a six-year-old really understand death and sickness like that? So it's sort of a combination of what they can comprehend and the time that it was in the 60s. How do you approach this issue with friends when you're 21 years old and you're diagnosed with cancer, Matthew? How do you go about telling your friends, hey, I have cancer? Even just 11 years ago for me, I had a very difficult time explaining to my friends who were all in college at the time. They didn't want to be bothered by it. They didn't want to be burdened by it. And it was really like one of those, so? So you got cancer. Get over it. And it was kind of like this blunt denial in a sense. And it was very isolating and it was very depressing that I didn't have that kind of support or that kind of even the opportunity for that kind of support network. So as a teen or a young adult, you're stigmatized if you have cancer. I hate to draw such an indirect parallel, but it's kind of like when you're diagnosed with HIV, where there's an immediate stigma that either you've done something wrong or why did this happen to you? I feel so helpless. I don't want to talk to you. This is something that's embarrassing to me and the family. We don't want the attention. This is all negative. You founded your organization, Steps for Living, because you wished when you were young you had these resources readily available to you? Yes. I mean, something even as simple as fertility. Fertility is an issue in cancer that really only affects people who are in their fertile range, their fertile years, 15 to 40, 45-ish. The idea is that these people need support, that these people need to connect with each other in very different ways than pediatrics and adult populations, that they need issues about fertility, that they need issues about college scholarships, they need issues about just lifestyle expense reimbursements. The majority of these people are underinsured or uninsured. So again, you're dealing with metrics and, and dynamics that are very, very unique to this population. Young people today spend more time on Facebook and MySpace than anywhere else. Are they even aware that there are resources available to them? Unfortunately, no. Because if you go to the major search engines, you get a billion results. You don't know what to sort through, what to sift through. And Joe's Cancer Shack in Iowa might not be the best place for you. No offense to Joe's Cancer Shack <laughs> if there happens to be one in Iowa. But, of course, the idea of peer review, trust, targeted search is really what, again, MySpace, Facebook, Dig, Delicious, YouTube, these online social media hubs are all really about. So it just dawned on me that there needed to be this Web 2.0 social media portal that listed all of these credible groups. And we would serve as almost a marketing engine or a promotional agent 
for all these resources. So I came up with the idea of uh, a brand called I'm Too Young for This, which I have to give credit to the wellness community of Boston because they have an annual program called I'm Too Young for This where they bring young adults together to socially network and get support. And it took off. I'm Too Young for This.org is the campaign of Steps for Living, which is an organization I founded to increase the quality of life of young adults with cancer by connecting them to credible resources. Terry, you perform on the I'm Too Young for This CD, the Benefit right. CD. How did you first learn about this? Well, Matthew and I actually did a concert together, and so that's how I knew Matthew, and I've always supported his efforts in putting this together. He's been really working hard for a long time to make this happen. It, it's finally taken off. I'm happy. The song on the CD is called Helpless Heart, and yes. you're going to perform it for us. Yes, I am. Helpless heart, take it slow. A small, steady start, a gentle flow. Time will come to feel all right. Helpless heart, take it easy tonight. Terry Scheinzeit's song is called Helpless Heart. She's a pediatric kidney cancer survivor. My thanks to her and Matthew Zachary, the founder of Steps for Living and I'm Too Young for This.org. That brings us to the end of this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can find archived shows and instructions on how to tap into the Cityscape podcast at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend. Don't hold so tight. Helpless heart, take it easy.